You're listening to episode 425 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, Max. Uh, sorry about last week, everyone. Um, I had a bit of a head cold from Hex, so you didn't really want to hear me or my voice, or did I want to put Max through editing the rasp and the hacking and coughing out of it. So I, I'm feeling a lot better. So I'm looking forward to catching up on a lot of stories this week. Yeah, we do have a lot of stories this week, David. Well, we've got the Japanese Self-Defense Forces consider using drones for intercept approaching military aircraft. DJI is reportedly dropping the Aeroscope drone detection platform. U.S. Senators want an assessment of DJI's security risks. Cardboard drones from Australia are going to Ukraine. The U.S. Air Force has plans for lots of loyal wingman drones. Alphabet Wings subsidiary says the network is the thing. Zipline's next generation aircraft. And the news, of course, for the general public, the Russian Su-27 fighter jets intercept a MQ-9 Reaper. So, Max, let's take it away with the first story. All right, David, let's do it. Well, in a timely note, this email came from AsiaNikai.com. Japan worries using drones to chase away foreign aircraft uh, instead of using foreign aircraft to chase away drones. Chinese military flights in the East China Sea have increased, and scrambling jets is expensive for Japan. So the Japanese Self-Defense Air Forces, or JASDAF, are thinking about using drones instead either the Turkish Beyrithar TB2 or the MQ-9 Reaper. I've heard of a lot of things, but this is interesting using the drones to intercept the aircraft. And there have been a lot of aircraft interceptions. The uh, Japan Self-Defense Forces scrambled jets 1,004 times in fiscal 2021, responding to foreign aircraft. A lot of times it's Chinese aircraft approaching And uh, there's an interesting little statistic here where they estimate that scrambling manned jets cost 40 times more than sending drones. The primary air intercept aircraft for Japan is the F-15, which besides the fact that they're getting older, right, there are a lot of man hours to keep flying. So uh, I, I do have some questions about using a drone for intercept purposes. One of the reasons why you intercept and identify the aircraft is to, A, steer it away from the incursion, and two, if necessary, take action. Um, It would be interesting to know what Japan's planning on doing if they're going to send up the drone to observe the aircraft and then, if necessary, scramble a manned aircraft afterwards, or are they going to try to find some sort of way of arming the UASs with air-to-air missiles? You know, I mean, I I find it hard to believe that a a Russian Sukhoi is going to find the MQ-9 a threat, given given circumstances recently. So it's interesting what Japan is, is thinking out of the box as far as economics goes, but realistically... What kind of deterrent is a UAS compared to a jet fighter or a jet bomber? Probably not much of a deterrent, I would think. It sounds like the plan here is to use the drones to identify the uh, approaching aircraft 
and then decide, okay, what, you know, what do they do next? Is it um, send up a manned fighter to intercept or manned aircraft or, or do something else? So I guess this would reduce the number of intercept flights, but I don't think it would eliminate them. But in any event, uh, the uh, Japan Self-Defense Forces is taking kind of an incremental approach to this. First, they're going to train their forces to use drones to identify foreign warships. And then if that works, then they would be used to identify approaching aircraft. So you're going to try it on warships first and then ultimately deploy these to identify aircraft if it proves workable. Yeah, and don't forget to don't forget the unidentified aerial phenomena out there, otherwise known as UFOs, because Japan's got a lot of them. So, okay, well, DJI quietly discontinues its drone detecting aeroscope system, and this was from TheVerge.com. According to The Verge, DJI, the aeroscope product page displays a pop-up that reads, "Quote: The aeroscope is no longer in production." For the latest in DJI technology, please view our product recommendations below. So what was Aeroscope? And it's interesting that it's disappeared. Yeah, Aeroscope is a drone detection platform. And what it does is it identifies UAV communication links, and then it gathers information in real time, things like flight status, flight paths, other information. And this was originally intended for law enforcement or other government agencies. But we've seen, David, it's uh, been used in, uh, in Ukraine. We know that off-the-shelf DJI aircraft have been used on both sides of the war, war, but primarily, I believe, they've been used by the Ukrainians. So therefore, it is interesting that it would disappear its because it would be giving Russia an added advantage. And DJI's political stance on this has been that they are not they are not in the business of warfare UASs. So I guess this supports follows up with their theory that you know they their aircraft should not be used in a combat zone. Um, but it, they haven't announced a formal discontinuity discontinuation of the product. So it's it's interesting that they're saying that it's been discontinued and usually there's like a formal page. But Max, you you didn't get the pop-up, did you? I did not. And I uh, first assumed that maybe I had my browser settings uh, such that they uh, blocked pop-ups or something like that. But I checked that. I checked it on different browsers. I checked because I use lots of browsers. And uh, I checked it on my phone, the browser on the phone as well, and I could not get that pop-up. I never saw. I saw some other pop-ups <laughs> come up on the DJI site, but uh, but I didn't. Now we'll have the Aeroscope link in the show notes, and you can try it yourself and see if the pop-ups appear. I think it's quite simple. I think it's DJI.com/Aeroscope, but apparently it's a it's a real thing. The drone lawyer, if you remember Brendan Schulman, uh, he noted that there were probably two reasons why DJI is discontinuing the aeroscope. He said, and this is a quote, it doesn't make sense to continue supporting a feature that was created to assist U.S. security interests when being constantly attacked 
by U.S. security agencies. Um, so, I mean, that's that's a possibility. But he also mentions the FAA's implementation of remote ID, um, and um, that kind of changes the the imperative for something like this. But you may remember Brendan Schulman uh, that um, he was he was with DJI for for a number of years. Uh, but if uh, you're not current on his activity, he left DJI in 2021, and he went to Boston Dynamics, where he's their vice president of policy and government relations, similar role to what he had at DJI. Brendan basically explained his move as, I would be dismissed if I did not mention the disappointment of how I feel how politicized the industry has become over the last few years. This has played a significant role in my decision to leave and is something that remains a growing challenge for the industry and a genuine threat to innovation. I hope that those of you remaining in the industry find a way to solve these challenges with fact-driven, risk-based policy and standards, organizations and individuals who have something to lose in a geopolitical game in which the drone industry is being treated as a pawn need to speak up and be heard. Which is kind of... Brendan was actually a very, very um, outspoken individual for a very long time. Um, So it it is kind of interesting that he has basically left the industry to go work for Boston Dynamics. Yeah. I... When I've seen him in the press or, you know, um, speaking um, in the past while he was with DJI, in the face of all the the criticism, the as he put it, the politicization of the whole Chinese drone security issues, I, I wondered if he was going to, how long he was going to put up with all that. Um, you know, why bother? So Boston Dynamics, of course, is a basically different kind of a company. I like their uh, robot dogs and, you know, robot uh, uh, bipeds. It's definitely a tech company, you know, a, a, a leading-edge technology company. So, I mean, congr- good, to, good for Brandon for landing there, but, you know, not good for the industry that we've lost. We've lost him. Yeah. All right, moving on. Let's talk about more DJI, and let's talk about the politicization of DJI. This is from nextgov.com. Centers request cyber safety analysis of Chinese-owned DJI drones. Again, the U.S. Senate is looking after DJI, and if it isn't DJI, it's TikTok. You know, those are the two organizations that the Senate has tried to um, get a handle on based, that are based in China. So this is about a bipartisan group of U.S. senators, and they're asking the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency to conduct an investigation. They want to see an evaluation of potential risks associated with DJI drones. And uh, there's a letter that the senators sent to that uh, security agency where they said, identification of this relationship between DJI and the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, suggests a range of risks to U.S. operations of the technology, including that sensitive information or data could wind up in PLA hands. So, yeah, it's very reminiscent of the uh, TikTok brouhaha. U.S. data being sent overseas either inadvertently, deliberately, etc. So it's this is definitely the 
one of the top po- top topics here in the United States, especially with TikTok, but DJI is also under lurking underneath there also, though not as pol- not as public as say the TikTok arguments. The next story is kind of cool, and it was from Forbes.com. Paper planes? Ukraine gets flat-packed cardboard drones from Australia. You know, we love our guys down in Australia, but who knew that they could convert cardboard into weapon systems? Yeah, this comes from a announcement, an announcement from SIPAC, and they announced that they're shipping its uh, Corvo drones to Ukraine. And as David mentioned, these drones come in flat pack form. And uh, by way of visualizing what that means, if uh, if they fold down into a pizza-sized box, 24 of them fit on a pallet. So that tells you something about uh, you know the little space that they take up when they're packed down. Well, you know, or, or you can always describe it this way. Have you ever bought some Ikea furniture? That's flat pack. That's how they come. So, yeah, the bodies of these, the uh, fuselage, is made of waxed cardboard. And we're not sure exactly which drones are going to Ukraine, but they have uh, produced in the past the Corvo PPDS. And that's been shown to be really, really simple to construct. In fact, take it out of the box, and the only thing you need to build the drone is uh, a glue gun, a knife, a pen, tape, maybe some rubber bands, and the only real tool you need is one to attach the propeller. And it's autonomous, too. You know, Max, um, who knew that we were going to go back to stick and tissue modeling? You know, I mean, we're, we're going back to the, the 50s, and we're going we're gonna to build doped balsa wood stick and tissue models. Um, what I want to know is, this is all great, man, and good, but where are the electronics? And if it's autonomous, there has to be some sort of brain involved. There must be. Uh, but we know very little about it. Um, there really isn't a lot of information. And we'll have a photo of uh, one of these. Actually, the the photo of the Corvo prototype in the, in the show notes. It kind of looks like a pizza box ready to fly with a tail. <laughs> it does. Kind of does. So... Uh, Corvo Autonomous Systems is, I guess, the division that produces these. And they they make a a family of autonomous systems, both fixed-wing and multi-rotor, for commercial and military applications. And they come in a variety of sizes, a variety of payloads. They kind of specialize in uh, real-time surveillance and photogrammetry. And they have uh, real-time data processing as part of the system, it includes target tracking, moving target indication, image enhancement, image encoding, and uh, KLV metadata. So, uh, again, they, they have not told us what the specifications are for these particular drones going to Ukraine. Uh, they haven't said how many of them are going to Ukraine or even when they're going. So we don't, we don't know a lot. No, but it is it, it, it is kind of cool what this little wing with a tail made out of cardboard um, and even its catapult system. I'm trying to drive you to the website so you look at this photograph. Um, it, it, it definitely looks reminiscent of a little tiny radio-controlled airplane that you would build in your backyard 
um, out of stick and tissue. So SIPAC, which is the organization, is an engineering and systems integration company. They provide products and services in several industry sectors, including defense and aerospace, information communication technology, state and federal government, and private enterprise. So again, SIPAC has not divulged the exact specifications of the drones, how many of them or the timing of the deliveries, but we'll find out. Um, It'll be interesting to see when they make the news after showing up in the Ukraine war zone area. So um, it's clearly a a tritable drone, given what it's made out of. So, but I'm going to use that, uh, the word attritable, to translate over to the next story, which is from defensenews.com. U.S. Air Force eyes a fleet of a thousand drone wingman as planning accelerates. So, the Air Force in the new budget has just asked for plans for a thousand loyal wingman. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. Um, now, they're asking for Congress uh, for f- they're asking Congress for funding in for both um, the CCAs. That's what I guess that's what they're calling them now, the Collaborative Combat Aircraft. Uh, I guess that equals Loyal Wingman, but also the Next Generation Air Dominance or NGAD uh, program. These are for futuristic fighter aircraft. So these things are linked, and the way they get to a thousand drones is that the Air Force estimates two CCAs, two collaborative combat aircraft, for each of the 200 NGAD platforms, and in addition, two CCAs for each of 300 F-35s. So uh, that's how they get to to 1,000 of, of these drones. Now, this is uh, these are estimates. These are not hard numbers at this point, apparently. Um, but it's interesting that they, they figured two of these per manned aircraft. You know, um, the other part about it was um, Secretary Frank Kendall, who was the Air Force, Secretary of, for the, of the Air Force, stressed that adapting drone wingman will not mean the Air Force has fewer crewed fighters in its inventory. Instead, he says, CCAs can be thought of as remotely controlled versions of the targeting or electronic warfare pods or weapons that crewed aircraft now carry. So um, it's a force multiplier. It's definitely not supplanting the um, NGADs or the F-35s. In fact, it's giving them additional um, abilities. So because, um, you know, when, when, when the Air Force asks for a 1,000 aircraft, uh, most of the senators and congressmen are, are immediately think of, oh, God, they're taking out my aircraft out of my state. And that, that's not going to happen. In fact, there's going to be more aircraft in the state. But it's interesting that you come up with two per F-35 and two per NGAD. But I would assume that they're really going to want more, especially if they're going to be attritable. Mm-hmm. Yeah spares, replacements. And, uh, of course, we don't have a selection for a loyal wingman at this point. We don't have a manufacturer selected. The Air Force has talked about holding a competition, but I, I don't think, David, we have any information about when that's supposed to happen or might happen. No, and I don't think we actually have any real prototypes. I mean, we have the Valkyrie... Um, as one of the prototypes that are, and we also have the um, 
ghost bat from Australia, the Boeing ghost bat. That being said, I think I think we're still away from actually having an aircraft that would be purchased for this system. Likewise, we don't even have NGADs yet. So it's a matter of, you know, we do have F-35s and the program is maturing and the Air Force is definitely on a fast track for getting these loyal wingmen. But um, we are still off for at least, say, three to five years before we actually see these things um, hitting squadrons or whatever and act at minimum. But you know what? Let's talk about Google. We've been hitting all the buzzwords today, right? Alphabet Wing subsidiary is delivering up to 1,000 packages a day in Australia. But the company unveils a drone delivery network ambition. Right, because 1,000 packages a day, that's a lot. But Wing is looking at it in terms of millions of deliveries per day. And how do you do that? And they say that developing this network service, they call it the wing delivery network, uh, is a key part of that because that enables the management of large numbers of drones. And this is not under a sort of a typical hub-and-spoke transportation system scenario where there's a home base for the drone, it flies the package to its destination, then comes back, gets another package, or gets recharged or something, and goes back out again. This is a concept where it's a network. So the, uh, the network includes, besides the drones themselves, also pads where the drones can land, take off, recharge their batteries, and auto loaders that allow companies to leave packages for collection, and then the drone comes to this point, loads the package into the drone automatically, and goes on. So what you have is, again, instead of a hub-and-spoke sort of a thing, you have drones delivering packages going from node to node to node, from pad to pad to pad, depending on where the the demand is um, and what needs to be delivered and the capabilities of the drone. So it's a different kind of an approach. It's definitely a a, a long-term view of uh, drone delivery where you've got to be able to accommodate huge numbers of deliveries occurring in a day. But it's, it's interesting, Max, because, you know, the hub-and-spoke model is – how deliveries are done today. I mean, it's FedEx does not move a truck, does not send a truck from one's hub to another. You know, they, you have hubs and then spokes. And then at the, at those nodes, we have other hubs where it spreads, it fans out farther and farther with everything returning back to a starting point. That's traditional logistics. So this is this is definitely thinking out of the box or or coming at it as a, as the article says, coming at it from a more networked or electronic viewpoint of the world and not a logistics viewpoint. And we'll have a video um, in the show notes that uh, kind of describes this wing drone delivery network. Uh, so it's it's relatively short, but you can get a sort of a better idea of what this looks like. And again, to me, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, scalability is uh, uh, something that you have to consider. We're kind of taking what really amounts to baby steps 
with package delivery by drone these days, even when you're talking about a thousand packages a day in Australia. Well, that's all of Australia. But um, for uh, uh, this concept to really take hold, you've got to be dealing with multiples, many multiples of that per day. And you need a system to uh, make efficient use of the drones and to make the distribution itself efficient. Practical. And, and practical. And this is a good way to do it, I think. So let's talk about efficient and practical. Zipline unveils its P2 delivery drone that stocks and recharges autonomously. And this is from CNBC.com. Zipline says they've flown more than 38 million miles with its autonomous delivery drones. And we know that they primarily have been working in the medical delivery field and quite successfully in Africa and slowly in the United States. But they've got a new product, the P2. Platform 2 or P2 Zip. And this uh, can carry an 8-pound payload. It's got a uh, range of uh, 10 miles, which you can cover in 10 minutes. And uh, significantly, you can land a package in a space as small as a table or doorstep. So the P1 version, the original version, David, had uh, really different characteristics. Yeah, first of all, it was a fixed wing aircraft. So the so this is the, the um, this has greater range, but required more space for takeoff and landing. The package dropped with a parachute, landing zone about size of two parking spaces, plus manual batteries at the base. So you had to replace the batteries. So the P two is also a fixed wing, but it has lift and cruise propellers. So it's really a um, one of those hybrid fixed wings. It's quieter, and it's much more maneuverable, um, and it can dock at a charging station and uh, charge itself up autonomously. So a, a big uh, aspect of this is is the, the better maneuverability and the ability to deliver packages into a much smaller footprint. I mean, when you think about it, when you're, when you're dropping a package from the drone with a parachute— uh, you know, pretty close to where it's going to land, but, I mean, there's a lot of variability. It's not very precise delivery. Now, anyone who's watched Tactical Airlift dropping parachutes or anyone who's seen um, pictures of the parachutes in D-Day knows that, you know, the 82nd Airborne knows that sometimes the wind takes them in places they don't want to go. But this one looks this one looks like the zip line has really gotten close to what is going to be a good delivery program. And they really have been expanding. You mentioned, David, that they started in, in Africa. Um, they're actually in um, six other countries now besides the Rwanda where they started. And they're doing limited delivery uh, and uh, offering distribution centers in, in three states. This uh, next generation aircraft, this P-2, is I think going to help them a lot in terms of you know expanding their offerings, and uh, we uh, we look forward to uh, seeing a lot of success from Zipline. Okay, I guess Max, we need to talk about the elephant in the room, or the elephant in the room that was the elephant in the room two weeks ago as we're recording this. What happens when you take an SU twenty seven and you decide to um, observe an MQ nine a little too closely? If you aren't aware, the United States Air Force was flying an MQ-9 Reaper over the Black Sea, over international waters, and 
Russia, who has declared the area part of their territory because of the annexation of Crimea, sent up two Su-27 flankers to intercept the aircraft. And there it went wrong. If you know anything about interceptions, this is not the way to do it. But basically, on one of the passes, both aircraft dumped fuel onto the drone to harass it. Then on one of the passes, the Su-27 misjudged and hit its propeller, causing that um, the aircraft to slowly lose control and um, the aircraft crashed into the Black Sea. So there was uh, at least some initial speculation. Uh, there were statements anyway from uh, from the Russians about this exactly what had happened here. Uh, but the MQ-9 turns out to have a pretty good, pretty versatile camera, right, David, that captured this. Yeah, what, what, what is interesting, if you know anything about the MQ-9 or the uh, MQ-1 is the camera sensors are located in a ball turret underneath the nose of the aircraft. So when these aircraft were, um, the Russian aircraft were coming up behind the aircraft, the ball turret swiveled around so you could see the aircraft. And originally the Russians claimed that it was um, not, it was a, a, it didn't happen at all. The events didn't happen at all. They have subsequently changed their thing and they actually awarded both pilots medals of honor for taking out the drone. But clearly what you see is you see a high vi high video footage of the aircraft coming up and the Su-27 losing control and, and literally bumping into the MQ-9. Now the MQ-9 crashed into the Black Sea. Um, before it was done, before it did that, it was completely wiped of all sensitive information that it was carrying. Um, all the communications, all the data. So, and then it was forced into the into the Black Sea. Um, my speculation on that was they wanted they probably made sure that it crashed hard into the ocean, so it would be in lots and lots of little pieces to recover. But the Russians have tried to recover some of it, but it won't be of any value. But that being said, it is another indication of how involved drones are in this current conflict in Europe, in, in Ukraine, um, even from a international standpoint that we, the U.S. is flying them. And of course, the Russians are upset because we are flying aircraft in international waters and um, observing their movements, etc., and most realistically passing that information to Ukraine. So because Ukraine doesn't have that ability, it doesn't mean that we're not passing along that information at being so they do feel like that we are we are spying on them which we are yeah quite uh, quite clearly so it's a good thing this didn't escalate into something uh more uh, more dramatic and of course we all hope that we don't want to be drawn into uh, some something that we'd rather not be involved in uh because of uh a bad interception. All right. Well, let's wrap it up, David. I want to thank all of you for listening to the UAV Digest. This has been episode 425. You can find us, of course, at theuavdigest.com. And, of course, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, 
Um, you can join our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com. If there's any stories or, in, or any interesting comments you'd like to make, just also email us at feedback at the UAVdigest.com. If you want to tell your friends about us, you could always, if you can't remember, UAVdigest.com. You can always say dronepodcast.com, and that will also take us to our show notes. So with that, I'm going to say we'll see you next week. This is David in Delaware. And Max in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. <laughs>